We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. It's just me here from the regular team today. We've cleared the decks to bring you a big interview and the very special guest, Francine Lacroix, our editor-at-large, is here too. Hey, Fran. Hi, Stephen. Great Love to have being you. here. Great to have you with us. I do feel like that your arrival signifies that I should sit up straight in my chair because you've come here to tell us something very important. But I think maybe, do we need to do we need to rebrand that? Should we make this sort of... Uh, I do. You know? I don't want to be the Grim Reaper. <laughs> so maybe, we, you know, the, the fun... Yeah, the, the, fun, the fun Reaper. has arrived at the margin. We'll work maybe. on that. We'll work on that later. Um, <laughs> but you're here because you are bringing us your interview with the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. It's hard to believe it's been four years since she was in number 10. Premiership dominated by Brexit and, of course, the negotiations to leave the European Union. Amid those dramatic scenes that became almost commonplace in Westminster, will we ever see the likes of again? Um, Francine, I'm really curious, when you started thinking about this interview, what moments sprung to mind for you from that premiership? Because it was there was so much that happened of import, but there was also so much else kind of happening behind the scenes that just led to this general sense of chaos. Yeah, certainly chaos. And I remember Stephen, so she, she has a book to sell. Mm-hmm. And so when our producers came out and saying, look, Theresa May will speak to Bloomberg, I thought, well, why is she writing this? And actually, when you think back, it was only a couple of years ago. It feels like a lifetime ago, because I remember at the time being quite traumatized about some of the events that were going on because it was hung parliament. Things were getting messy. And We all learned so much about since, parliamentary procedure. I mean, can't, can't, you know, since we're, we're used to it, there's no real chaos, you know, th- that was less than what we had at the time. And so I, I wanted to, to reflect with her, but also before her, actually why is she writing this book? Is it to settle scores? Is it to give herself a, a better reputation? And if you look at the prism of why does a prime minister write something, usually it is to give a message. So it's interesting that she chose the abuse of power. So in this book, she didn't really talk about Brexit. I mean, she talks about Hillsborough, she talks about sexual harassment, Windrush, Russia's illegal invasion. And partly she she does reflect on her own failings. Um, her critics would say, look, that's not enough. But it was just a very, very volatile moment. And I think since we've gotten used to it, maybe it was really the beginning of, of the chaotic politics that now we have on this day and day. I mean, do you remember she used to, she was walking in the Rose Garden with mm. President Trump and he was holding her hand and we'd never really seen that before, right? It was one of the first times where you say, wait, what, what's yeah. going on? And then he attacked her and then there was like, I mean, not physically, but, yeah. but in terms of words. And then there was those very, very, you know, messy Brexit negotiations. So I would say it was, it was, it was really c- cementing the kind of politics henceforth of of chaos and and no real true diplomacy anymore. Okay, well let's take a listen now to that interview with Theresa May. Theresa May, thank you so much for for joining us on Bloomberg and congratulations on the book. Who did you write that for? I wrote it because a number of issues I'd come across when I was both Home Secretary and Prime Minister. When I left office and, and started reflecting on these issues, I realised there was a thread underpinning them. And I wanted to raise awareness about that thread, which was, as I say in the, the title of the book, The Abuse of Power. So I was really writing it for those who are in power um, to say, actually, they need to think that they're in positions of service rather than power, but also, I think, to give hope to the powerless. Do, do you think you had a hard time when you were in power? 
Well, I had some difficult issues to, uh, to deal with when I was in power, but every politician, when you're elected, uh, when you become a government minister at whatever stage, you have to deal with the circumstances that, that you're presented with. But with hindsight, do you feel vindicated? Because actually your strategy could have worked better than other strategy after you. Well, I assume you're talking about Brexit strategy, which is, but which um, indeed, I mean, I'm, I'm on record as saying I think my deal was better than the deal that was finally concluded. But I couldn't get my deal through the House of Commons, so somebody else had to go have a go. Yeah, but, but you were also personally, you know, they, they said that you were maybe not as exciting as others. Boris Johnson proved to be very exciting, a little too exciting. Well, I think it's, it, it's interesting. It's one of the things that I think I took from my childhood. I, my father was a clergyman, so I was brought up in a country vicarage uh, in, uh, in, uh, just out, you know, in Oxfordshire in the UK. And in that time, I sort of learnt that I wasn't just myself. I was representing, in a sense, my father. People looked at my behaviour and, and sort of saw my father through it, and similarly the church. And it's a little bit similar in politics that as an individual you're not just there as the individual you're there as a representative of your party your government and in international affairs of, of your country and so i've always taken the view that one must be careful in the approach that that i took uh, to uh, what i said and how i approached issues and yes some people said that wasn't very exciting but but so d does does your style and the way you did business d at the end was it vindicated well, I don't know. I mean, it's a different way of doing business. Okay. I think it had worked to get some results that I thought were good. Um, others had a different style and came out with a slightly different result. Uh, what we will see in the future, of course, is as the country moves on, um, how the country deals with uh, the situation that it's on. And that's important for us now in, uh, in our economy and business is, is to move on. Do, do you think you were held to a different standard because you were a female leader? I don't think, I mean, I think there was some different expectations. Some of the um, male colleagues would, for example, have, have said and sometimes actively said to me and openly said to me that uh, when I was negotiating with the European Union, I should have been thumping the table, I should have been walking out of the room, I should have been slamming the door. Those very sort of aggressive ways of doing it. In, in fact, I had spent some years before I went into Parliament in a position where I was negotiating with the European Union. Uh, uh, European Commission, and uh, I'd learnt through that that it was painstaking, slow, deliberate and careful negotiation on the details that got you where you wanted to be. But has politics changed in the last five to six years, the way we communicate, the way diplomacy around the world, frankly, is done? I think politics across the world has been changing in recent years. I say, I say in the book, I think we live in a more absolutist world, a sense of you're either 100% with me or 100% against me. I think there are some in politics who um, find it difficult to accept the concept of compromise, whereas we know um, in politics, in business, in everyday life, sometimes you actually have to compromise. And I think there has been, um, in some senses, if you look at politics today, there's less respect than there has been in the past, perhaps a, a, a coarser debate. I don't think that's good, and I think sometimes that puts young people off. Um, which is not good for the future of our democracy. Uh, what's your biggest regret? Well, I have to say my biggest regret is not getting the deal I wanted to get through the House of Commons. Um, and I think every Prime Minister leaves office feeling that there were things that they wanted to do. So some of the things I started have now been completed. I introduced a new um, Domestic Abuse Act, for example, which is now on the statute book. 
I introduced, did some work for a new Mental Health Act, which has not yet reached the statute book. We still have, uh, that still has to be brought forward. So th there are always things that, if you'd had a little more time, you hope you would have completed. It, did you feel at the time that the Brexiteers actually left it to the Remainers to, to, to get the job done because they didn't really have a blueprint of what they wanted? Well, ultimately, they, I think some of them found it difficult to think that a Remainer, because I'd voted Remain, could deliver Brexit for them. And so, therefore, obviously, after me, they went for Boris Johnson, who had led the Brexit campaign and was a, was a Brexiteer. And during the, the, the debates and towards the end of my time, we saw sort of hardline Brexiteers looking for a very hard Brexit, hardline Remainers wanting a second referendum to stay in. And uh, that's why Parliament couldn't come together. Do you think we'll ever get a second referendum? No, I think the, deci the decision has been taken. And I have always taken the view that if you ask the people their view and they give you their view, you should act on that. I think it was the democratic will of the people that we left the European Union. But I think now what we must be doing is saying, actually, we've done Brexit. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. The ex-MNS boss, Stuart Rose, says Brexit will be reversed within 20 years. Do you think that's possible? Well, I think a lot of people, when they look at that, are thinking of, if you like, the current circumstances of the European Union. Over the next 20 years, the European Union is going to change. Um, its structures will change, its membership will change. So it will be a, it will be a different body. The UK will develop over that, that 20 years. If you look back, there's always been an issue, even since we first joined the common market, as it was then, there's always been a slight concern in the UK an island nation about this sense of being sort of attached to a group in, in Europe and that came to its head for a variety of reasons in the referendum. I think part of that was part of the wider political uh, sense that we've had across the world of people feeling globalisation hadn't been working for them, some people have been left behind and people in the UK wanted their politicians to change. But, but looking forward five, ten years, could you see an arrangement where actually the, the two are closer together? Well, I think what we've already seen, for example, the UK negotiating to um, rejoin Horizon, Science, yeah. I think is a very good example yeah. of a recognition that sometimes there are things there that it's good to be part of that, um, yeah. uh, you know, in relation to the EU. And I think over time we will see those uh, you know, number of areas. Uh, there are some areas on the law enforcement side, which I yeah. recognised as Home Secretary, where I hope we'll be able to, to um, get greater access to some databases and things like that. But I think there's a recognition now of the need to sit down and say, well, what makes okay. sense? Right. And what do you think makes sense? And again, depending on what happens at the next election, do you think that will again be on the table, if not another referendum, certainly closer business ties? I think over time, governments will be looking to see what makes sense for economies on, on both sides, for the EU, <coughs> but also for the, for the UK economy and businesses in the, in the UK as well. Do, do you ever regret making Boris Johnson your foreign minister? No, I, I was very clear when I set my cabinet that I needed to have a cabinet that was both Remainers and Brexiteers. The result of the uh, referendum was clear, mm -hmm. but it was close. And what I want, always wanted to do was to deliver Brexit, but a Brexit that recognised the concerns of the 48% who had voted to remain. Boris had led the Brexit campaign. I think therefore it was right that he was in the cabinet in a prominent role. We've had quite an eventful 
let's call it that, 12 months in UK politics, in UK business and UK markets. Do you think things have stabilised after the mini-budget of last autumn? Yes, I think things have stabilised. I think uh, Rishi, I mean, started Jeremy Hunt being brought in as Chancellor, I think, was the first step. But Rishi taking over, obviously, as uh, leader of the party and Prime Minister with Jeremy in number 11 has stabilised uh, stabilised matters. I mean, it's been difficult for economies around the world with the pan impact of the pandemic. And, you know, we're all still coming out of that. Um, but I think, and what I see, and what I hope markets and businesses see, is uh, a, U a UK government that recognises the importance of sound public finance. If you look at the polls, is there any advice that you would give the current government to avoid a Tory wipeout at the next elections? Uh, I think what Rishi Sunak is doing, which is saying, I've identified priorities, mm -hmm. the priorities of the British people, and I'm working hard to deliver on those, is is what he should be doing, and I think he's, right. so he's doing the, the right thing. Obviously, in economic terms, inflation is, is critical. We have a generation now, you know, I'm old enough to have lived through inflation in the 70s, but there's a generation now who haven't lived through high in, higher interest rates and inflation, and it has been difficult for many. Many people are struggling in their day-to-day -day life and their day-to-day -day finances. Bringing that inflation down is important. Yeah, but, but what do you say to those voters that say, look, the Tories have had a good shot at this for a long time and it's just time for a change? What I say is, listen to the future that we want to um, create to ensure that the United Kingdom has. The future of jobs, future of prosperity, that is what we are looking to deliver. We've had these difficulties, pandemic hit economies. Um, we're now stabilising that economy. And as you see from what, for example, Rishi is doing in terms of the AI conference, very much saying, what is the future? And how can we, the United Kingdom, be a good part of that future and encourage businesses in the UK to be part of that future? You, you were very deliberate and precise in your dealings with China. Should Rishi Sunak have, have flown to China, actually, in the first year in office? I think it's... Look, the, the debate about China is often seems to be in what I described earlier as those absolutist terms, that either you ignore China or you're completely sort of in with China. The answer is, of course, that it's right to be neither of those. Um, you can't ignore China, huge economic presence uh, across the world, although the Deputy Prime Minister identified it as the number one state-based threat to our economic security. But it's a huge presence economically for businesses, but also, of course, in terms of the, um, the way it has reached out across the world, sometimes being able to take a position in countries because the West has not been there. So we should learn from that, I think. Um, but we have to balance. There are real human rights um, issues with China. You know, I'm involved in setting up a global commission on modern slavery. Um, if you look at the recent Global Slavery Index, it identified solar panels being created in China and labour exploitation behind those. So we have to look very carefully and businesses can make a huge difference in looking at their supply chains. But at the moment, do you think we're too hard on China? And is there a danger that if you look at the template of what happened with Russia in the Cold War, we're repeating that with China today? Well, I think what was interesting in, if you think about Russia in the Cold War, is in a sense, both sides knew where the dividing lines were uh, and were able to, to, there was an existence that was able to go into the future with people understanding those dividing lines. Um, and I think maybe we haven't quite got to that point with China. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting if you look at somebody like uh, Kevin Rudd, former Australian Prime Minister, who's 
very knowledgeable on China. He sets out that as one of the potential ways forward. Um, President Trump had given you a hard time. What do you think a, a second presidency, if he wins the next election, means for the world? Well, I'm not going to speculate on the result of, uh, of an American presidential election or indeed on the result of, of parties' candidates and who they choose for candidates. I mean, what I would say is that it was, um, I would say, a presidency like no other uh, when we saw President Trump in, in uh, his uh, position uh, and it was a more unpredictable, perhaps an uncertain presidency. I think what we see now and in a sense the war in Ukraine has helped with this is, is America again with its Western allies standing up for Western values. But do you see abuse of power in the US? What I worry about in the US is the polarization of politics, the, what I would say the very hard line polarization of politics. And uh, I, as many around the world uh, in democracies, were deeply concerned about the mob attack on the Capitol uh, and what that meant for democracy. And I think it, it, in a sense, was a wake-up call because for, in recent decades, I think those of us in the West have taken the view that liberal democracies were in the ascendancy, that this was an accepted way forward, and we almost didn't need to worry. We became complacent. Actually, we have to fight. We have to work hard to protect democracies and to persuade younger generations in our own countries of the importance of democracy. But are these cycles in the politics and foreign affairs of the world, or is it social media? Well, I think um, you can argue that politics does have its cycles. Um, if you look at the economic situation, many would say, I referred to the 1970s, yeah. many would say we're seeing that, that sort of cycle. But I think that my own view is social media does have an impact on these issues mm -hmm. in terms of the nature of political yeah. debate. Um, and I think it, it means that somebody whose views normally would perhaps be dismissed or not listened to, can promulgate those views across social media. And other people, similarly thinking, will respond. It becomes a world view. And the danger is that people only listen to people who have their say, the same views as them and don't enter into what we need in politics, which is a respectful and serious debate, because we're all facing some really tough issues. Um, in your book, you, you talk about concrete examples and, and you unpick the kind of abuse of power. Do you think it, it will get worse before it gets better? Well, I hope that having written the book, having, uh, if you like, shone a light on this issue of the abuse of power, that actually people will start to say, yes, there is something there. What can we do to have a different approach? I mean, the fundamental of the book is that, um, you know, I start off by saying... A, a, in an interview, I'd said that being prime minister was not a position of power, it was a position of service. I think all those who are in politics are there in a position of service and should never forget that. So why do young people not, not want to join politics? How difficult is it? Is it because you get dragged through the mud? I mean, politics was always a, a dirty business, but what you're also getting at is that it's maybe harder now than it was 20 years ago. I think that for a, a lot of young people, I think that the world is different to the world that perhaps I grew up in. I think there is an element of some people who don't go into politics, particularly, sadly, women who don't go into politics because of the bullying, the harassment, the threats on social media, for example, and feeling that that's not something they want to, they want to be part of or the recipients of. Um, I think also for young people, often these days, they're having to cope with really difficult 
some with really difficult times. I think we do see a younger generation who are now worried that they won't be better off than their parents. You know, we've seen through time, every generation has hoped that its children will be better off. But now you just look in the UK how difficult it is for young people to own their own home, for example. Um, as I said earlier, the impact of higher interest rates of inflation has been something they haven't had to cope with before. And I think that sort of day-to-day -day managing yeah. and a feeling perhaps that the politicians haven't responded to those yeah. needs um, perhaps also has, is an element of putting them off politics. You talk about the Metropolitan Police, you talk about Grenfell, you talk also about immigration. What are you most ashamed of in terms of policies that have been, have been put in place or the abuse of power in, in certain pockets of UK society? Well, I think the, the, the underlying theme that I'm really concerned about is the sense of people in public institutions which are often there to protect the public or to serve the public, um, deciding instead to take decisions that serve themselves rather than the public. So the, if you like, the idea for the book came from reflections I made after I'd left office, but was really sparked by uh, Hillsborough. This was a tr sporting tragedy that yep. happened in 1989. 97 Liverpool fans were killed. Um, and after the tragedy, what we saw was, it was South Yorkshire police in that yep. case, altering witness statements, yes. blaming the fans. Um, we've now got to a point, thankfully, where the fans have been exonerated. But it's that sense that I want to draw out there and in other examples of people in the public sector in positions of power using that power for themselves and their institution to defend their institution rather than to protect or serve the people that they are there to serve. You've become a little bit of a meme celebrity, right, with the, with the <laughs> right? dancing. Which well, is it something? I mean, are, do you are, are different you descriptions of my dancing, by the way, from different you don't, people? Do you regret the dancing? I don't regret the dancing. No, no. Um, I, I know you also made global headlines talking about you know the naughtiest thing you've you've done oh. since you've left Number Ten. Have you done anything naughty, naughtier <laughs> than running through no, fields? No, I, I have to say, if I was asked today what's the silliest thing I've done, probably answering that question was the silliest thing that I'd ever done. So that was the former Prime Minister speaking to our editor-at-large, Francine Lacqua, and France still with us in studio. I'm really glad you asked that question at the end about the wheat field, because it's one of those things that was actually quite central, first of all, to that election campaign, but to the measure of how people viewed Theresa May at the time, the sort of attempt to build what people understood of her personality, which, of course, was so central to what happened to the Conservative Party afterwards and the rise of Boris Johnson and everything that came afterwards. What what stood out for you from that conversation? Well, the, the, so the last couple of questions were, were very awkward when I asked her whether she knew that she was a meme because of the dancing. Yeah. And I remember at the time her being really personally attacked, not only because she was considered boring and awkward, but just because she didn't know how to speak to to politicians. So it was interesting getting her to talk about whether she felt she was held to a higher standard because she was a woman. But then when you speak to also, uh, you know, the people that backed her, she was, and this we used to say at the time, and, and I think it's it's even truer now, she was dealt a rough hand yeah. at cards, but she dealt with it even worse. She never made the connection. She tried to get, you know, the Brexiteers and the Remainers together without really ever being in charge. Mm. And so that, that, I think, really came across in the interview, that she didn't use her iron fist to get people in line, and maybe that's what we needed. 
But it, it was really interesting, I think, how measured she was in talking about some of her colleagues because we know of what was going on behind the scenes. We know it was vicious at times. Um, and even when it came to, to Boris Johnson, she didn't really seem to have a bad word to say. She didn't. So after the interview, I also uh, spoke with Adrian Woolridge, who's mm. very funny from Bloomberg, Bloomberg opinion. opinion. And I asked, what did you think of the interview? And he says, well, you know, it, it was interesting. But when you have so many former prime ministers writing books, and I think he mentioned Liz Truss is mm-hmm. also writing a book uh, about power and and, and how to get the perhaps? world. Well, apparently it's not shorter, although she only stayed in power just over 40 days. It's like you, you need to go after something. I mean, you need to, to make sure that the media and the book actually understands what your position is. And she was very careful. She didn't really go after Rishi Sunak. She didn't go, she didn't go after uh, Boris Johnson. He, you know, kind of stuck the knife in a couple of times. So I was surprised at her decorum. I don't know whether she's expecting to come out cleaner or whether she's just a classy act. But I was surprised at how measured she was. She even said, you know, she didn't regret putting him as foreign minister. Yeah, which which was, I think, really interesting. I mean, in such a wide-ranging conversation, is there anything you think that she said that would resonate in the ears of the current prime minister, particularly as we're looking towards an election, a very difficult election, perhaps something to be learned from Theresa May's experiences. So what stood out to me actually was that she talked about the Capitol riots as a watershed moment in the US for Western democracy. And I would have probably said that that would have come before because we've had so many of those moments where President Trump was saying things that you know, we weren't used to that other G7 allies went, wait, what? That's coming from, you know, the, the leader of the free world. And so the fact that she really pinpoints as that January event as somewhere which, if, I mean, she didn't really warn that it could be repeated elsewhere, but she'd, she'd said for her that changed her perspective on Western democracies and the fact that, uh, you know, we need to fight a lot more for what was a given in the decades before, that actually there was democracy and you didn't really challenge ele- elections if you lost. The comments on China too, so I think actually were the part that almost made the most headlines for me listening to it too, this idea, given that we're talking about allegations of spying in Westminster at the moment, very topical to, to hear her views on Britain's future relationship with China. And it's very different from, from the US. I mean, if you speak anyone to anyone in the US, be it Democrat or Republican, they want to go after China. Yes, it's an election cycle, so it's extremely difficult for them to be benign or certainly wanting to work around uh, China t- to make sure that there's a deal. But she, you know, she comes from it from from, from someone who at the time tried to do economic deals. Again, she wouldn't, and I asked her, was it a mistake from Rishi Sunak not to fly to China in his first year in office? Because you kind of need them on side, be it geopolitics, be it Ukraine, being how to deal with Russia, be it, you know, with the iPhones. And she she wouldn't be drawn on that, but mm. she said we need to find a working cooperation with China. So again, I thought she was much softer on China that, than I thought she would be. The book title itself is quite provocative, The Abuse of Power. Overall, did you find her optimistic or pessimistic? I think pretty pessimistic. I think very pessimistic. Because if you look at what she talks about, and it's sexual harassment, some of you know, the scandals that really shook the UK, nothing really has gotten better. So I ask her, do you think it has to get much worse? Is this a cycle where it gets so bad at a point where there's a watershed moment and you realize, like, wait, what are we doing? She wouldn't be drawn out. I mean, she was maybe a little bit uh, naive in saying, well, I hope people read my book and then change, especially politicians, and then become wiser and, and become more correct and, and stop abusing the power they have. Um, I, 
I mean, do they ever really? But certainly it's an interesting conversation, she, she, you know, to have. I mean, she's always very subdued. So she says, you know, we're not here to have power. We're here to serve. Again, great. But then you also have to lead when you're in power. So you mm-hmm. have to make sure that you have that leadership quality for people to follow. A fascinating conversation. Thank you, Francine Lacco, for bringing us your interview with the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufo Hussain. I'm Stephen Carroll. Special thanks to Francine Lacqua. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.